Welcome to Studio Two on a Thursday. I'm Cherry Gray. And on a Thursday, I'm Avi Wolfman Aaron. Cherry, the show today I would describe as a little something for everybody. Yeah. We're all over the map yeah. today. So we're starting in this segment, at the end of this segment, uh, talking to the Philadelphia Inquirer's Rosa Cartagena mm-hmm. about the Morton Cranial Collection. You might have heard about this. It's been held at the Penn Museum since the 1800s, and um, it was collected very unethically. These were human mm-hmm. remains that were used to try to build racist scientific theories. Penn has held them for decades, and um, they're working now to mm-hmm. repatriate and to respectfully mm-hmm. bury some of these remains, but not everyone's happy with how that process yeah. is playing out. Mm-hmm. Then segment two, Cherry. Mm-hmm. Big shift. Yep. We're talking about tea. Yep, we got some cups here. We got some t- We can <laughs> clink our cups. There's a Bryn Mawr chemistry professor, Michelle Franzel, who wrote a book, a lovely book, mm-hmm. about the chemistry of tea. And she deigned to suggest mm-hmm. that it might be helpful to put a pinch of salt in your tea. Starting an international controversy. Inter- the Brits are up <laughs> in arms. So we said, Michelle Franzel, come into our studio, Studio 2, pour us some cups of tea, talk to us about the chemistry of tea, Defend your salt and tea yourself. claim, yes. um, and uh, we also want to hear like what you think about tea, mm-hmm. how you think tea should be brewed, your favorite cups, maybe your questions about tea, because Michelle knows everything. And I'll also warn folks, there is a high probability of wordplay. Yes. In this second Maybe segment. Maybe a couple puns. Maybe a couple puns. <laughs> Spill the tea. Not my cup of tea. Pot kettle black. It's uh, all on the all table. There. And all then there. Third segment is about a new PBS kids show called Lila in the Loop. Mm-hmm. Very excited about this program because although it is not technically set in Philadelphia, it is set in a Philadelphia-like yeah. city. Philly-esque. Um, and the creators are in this studio in South Philly called Mighty Picnic. And so we talked with the creator and the executive producer, and it was a really fun conversation. And you'll get to hear that later in the show. Yeah, and by the way, get your tea questions in. You can email us, studio2 at whyy.org. Our number is 888-477-9499. Now, if you're in the middle of your lunch, here's my disclaimer. Don't take that next bite because the details of our big story for today to kick off our news yeah, roundup. Disturbing. A little disturbing, yes. And... Uh, many of you have probably heard about that grisly killing in Bucks County where a man allegedly beheaded his father and then posted a graphic video to YouTube where he displayed his father's severed head and ranted about the federal government. Well, police say 32-year-old Justin Moan killed his father Tuesday night in the family's home in Levittown. He was arrested hours later at a National Guard training center about 100 miles from his home. Moan actually referred to his father by name in that video, calling the retired civil engineer for the Army Corps of Engineers a traitor and said that he was glad he was dead. His mother, she found her husband's body in the bathroom. The video he posted, Avi, was online for about five hours. It was Mm -hmm. viewed 5,000 times before it was taken down. By the way, Justin Moan's channel had been terminated because the website had violent extremism policies and that that his site had violated those policies. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah. Yeah. And by the way, uh, Moan is um, facing uh, a number of charges, including first degree murder and abusing a a corpse, as well as other crimes. Yeah. We talked about this before the show. Do do we want to talk about this? Do we want to talk about this? Do we want to give any uh, sunlight to this? It's obviously a very disturbing case, but I do think there is one angle 
that's broader that yeah. is something that we can discuss, which is content moderation mm-hmm. on these social media platforms. You heard, heard it in the national newscast. You heard it all day yesterday, Capitol Hill, uh, that big hearing about sort of what are the responsibilities of these social media giants, these platforms, when it comes to content moderation. This video was taken down, but it was up for five hours. 5,000 views. That's a lot of people who saw this. And and the question, of course, is reasonably, Mm -hmm. how quickly can these companies catch violent content like Mm -hmm. this Mm -hmm. and take it down without violating the spirit of sort of free exchange and free information? And I don't have the answers to that, but of course this case brings that to light. Yeah, and, and YouTube, of course, used... AI, they use human moderators as well. They took down millions of videos yeah. over the past year, but this one made it through. Right, um, and, and what should we expect? What can we reasonably mm-hmm, expect? Mm-hmm. We're all sort of marching off into the future with this, and I don't know if we even know what the breaks on this system should look like. Mm-hmm. Still to this day, and even, though, even yeah. though YouTube's been around for a while. Yeah, something needs to be done, and folks are stepping up, or at least talking about it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah at least talking about it. Yeah, I don't want to give them too much credit yet. Mm -hmm. Um, We will turn to something far more pleasant, Cherry, which is that tomorrow Philadelphia turns 170 years old. And I know what you're thinking. You're saying, wait a second, Philadelphia is not 170 years old. It was founded in the 1600s. It's far older than that. But. Ooh, break it down. Here's what you didn't know. Maybe. Uh, For about the first 170 years of Philly's existence, starting in the 1680s, the actual city of Philadelphia was pretty much just what we call center city today. It was mm-hmm. William Penn's Green Town, that little, that little uh, cluster of streets between the rivers and then between, you know, Vine Street and South. Then in 1854, this thing called the Consolidation Act was signed, and Philadelphia County became Philadelphia City, mm-hmm. and it basically became the city we know today, with the borders we know today with some minor alterations since then. So 1854 is really when Philly became Philly. February 2nd, 1854. That happens tomorrow. That is pretty cool. But what stood out to me, Avi, is that when Philly, as we know, it was created, it would, the Democrats did not run the city. The Whigs did. And they were against this broadening of what is Philadelphia because they felt the Democrats would take over. Fast forward. 170 years, <laughs> who's in charge? <laughs> well, the Republicans had a lock on, on the city in between. But, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But the Whigs, yeah, sorry. <laughs> I just sorry. throw that in there. <laughs> Whig dominance of Philly is no more. Um, I do want to I do want to shout out, first of all, J.J. Tizu, who uh, you might know that name. He does these mm. walks around the city of Philadelphia, and he's become kind of well-known for this. Um, and he suggested this topic to us via email. That's and pretty thank cool. Thank you, JJ. It was a really nice suggestion. Uh, but also, he has more walks coming up. Some of them are sold out. But if you go to his website, um, you can sign up for one of those walks. They're, I'm told they're very interesting. That's kind of cool. And one of the reasons, Cherry, that, that mm-hmm. they decided to expand the city of Philadelphia was because in the parts of the county that were not part of the city, there were these duplicative municipal services. Mm. But also, people felt not enough policing. And there wow. had been anti-Irish, anti-immigrant riots just outside what was then the city of Philadelphia. And that triggered some of these conversations about expanding the borders of the city. Fascinating. Philadelphia and the history There's of some the city. Layers. So There's layers, layers to it. Layers, layers, layers. to it. Well, um, you know. Speaking of tomorrow. Speaking of tomorrow, because tomorrow's the big you know, anniversary. But tomorrow's also Groundhog Day, obviously. It is Groundhog Day. And there's a lot going on. For one, a New Jersey town will not have a ceremony for its third consecutive year. And 
Snow, no ceremony. Yeah, and Snow will likely have a comeback. We'll talk about that. So first of all, out in Milltown in Middlesex County, New Jersey, a little bit on the line, probably maybe a little bit outside of our listening area, but still. We fudged this one a little bit. Um, they have canceled for the third year in a row their groundhog festivities because of the the death of Mel the groundhog back in 2022. Apparently, organizers have not been able to find a suitable replacement that complies with state wildlife regulations. So they can't find a groundhog. They can't find another Mel, man. But Mel is probably in, irreplaceable. So there you go. There's only one Mel. Um, locally, though, no matter what, our groundhog, Phil, for, will forecast on Friday. And, you know, winter may make a very short term return. Um, apparently, we could get some snow, which is packing across the country. Um, and Philly, so far at eight inches, has had more snow than Minneapolis, which has only recorded 7.3 inches. Can you believe that we've gotten I'm sorting through all of the information you just gave yeah. me. All right, so no Mel. So Milltown's not having anything. No. Punxsutawney's still having their thing with yeah. Phil. So we do have a fill. We, we do don't, have a fill. We don't have a mel. We don't have a mel. I know that's a lot. There might be some more snow later in the month is what yeah, you're telling me. And, and, but it'll be short. It'll yeah. be short. Okay. So we winter, probably will not have six more weeks of winter, which is got it. what we're talking about. Okay. I, well, I'll tell you what. That groundhog that they have in those uh, PA lottery commercials, Gus, you don't need to replace him. He's animatronic. He lives forever. That could be a possibility. And that's another forward. groundhog. There's there's so yeah, many groundhogs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you go. That was cute. You should have seen Avi's face for this one. Like you, what? The keep on scratching. Yeah, you. You had the whole. I do a pretty yeah, good Gus. What can I say? Gus. I watch a lot of television. <laughs> um, I want to shift now to a far more serious topic. Um, it's got nothing to do with groundhogs, obviously. We, you may recall back in 2020, the Penn Museum got national attention for its Morton Cranial Collection, which was a collection of over a thousand skulls mm. that were mostly assembled by an early 19th century scientist to prove white supremacist theories. And this collection was later used for other research. Now, the museum apologized in 2021 for accepting this collection in the first place and then began a process to figure out how to handle the remains respectfully. The remains of 19 black Philadelphians from the collection were interred in a mausoleum recently. And this Saturday, Penn Museum will hold a blessing ceremony honoring their memory. The event will happen despite backlash from several groups who are raising questions about exactly how much work went into locating descendants. Joining us now is Philadelphia Inquirer reporter Rosa Cartagena. Rosa, welcome to Studio Two. Thanks so much for having me. Rosa, explain to folks what is this Morton Cranial Collection? How were these remains and these skulls collected in the first place? Um, and, and who was Samuel Morton? Samuel George Morton was a former president of the Academy of Natural Sciences here in Philadelphia. He was based here in the city, and he collected, amassed a collection of more than 1,300, it's estimated, crania from around the world. And this really came from grave robbing and, and stealing these skulls from individuals, oftentimes from uh, grave sites and burial sites that were including black and other marginalized identities. Um, uh, people with other marginalized identities. And these were, you know, taken from people who were poor, people who at the time couldn't afford their own burials, uh, or, you know, very much stolen here in Philadelphia from grounds in, in West Philadelphia that mm. held these remains. And those skulls were taken. They were put in this collection uh, in the 1830s and 1840s. 
And then Penn acquired this collection. In 1966. Mm -hmm. And they've spent decades literally trying to uh, make repairs for the damage caused by uh, this collection. Talk about that work and then sort of how uh, the most recent controversy fits in with that. Sure. So a lot of this has come from public outcry over what was discovered as, uh, you know, the remains of people who were enslaved during their lifetime. Mm. These critics are saying that the museum is not doing this process correctly, um, that this repatriation process has involved them uh, working with community members on a small group, a small advisory group. These are spiritual and community leaders in West Philadelphia who have worked with the Penn Museum to make this decision about where and when and how to bury these individuals. And that decision came through the courts. They went, they petitioned the Philadelphia Orphan, Orphans Court, um, and that was granted. So in this case, you know, their efforts to repatriate the remains really are about moving them to a cemetery and, and burying them there. However, no, there haven't been uh, descendants that have yet been identified. Um, in this case, These 19 individuals are uh, nameless. They only have information about, uh, from Morton, really, about uh, racial background, um, age, possible conditions that they may have, you know, died from. Uh, But outside of that, there has not been, and this is what critics are saying as well, is that there's not been enough time to do sufficient research to know who these individuals are and potentially identify living descendants. Can I just backtrack a little bit? Mm -hmm. Sure. So, Rosa, so so there's like 1,300 specimen in this larger collection. We have somehow focused now on these 19 who are probably from Philadelphia. And these are the ones that Penn has decided to uh, put in a mausoleum at the Eden Cemetery. How did we get to these 19? Like, why the focus on these 19? This idea is that the entire collection should be dismantled and repatriated. And the museum is starting locally with the idea that hopefully this would be um, a process that they would be able to do expediently. The issue here is that there's a concern that they're doing this too fast. They're, they're doing this too quickly because there hasn't been enough research done. And they're also, you know, critics are also saying that there's not much transparency over who's making these decisions. And, and who, who yeah. has been a part of this, this decision process um, in deciding what should be done to repatriate? Yeah, so this Morton collection, uh, Morton Cranial Collection Advisory Group consists of um, about 14 people. It's changed a little bit uh, since they petitioned the court, but it it contains uh, multiple members uh, who are affiliated with Penn, and then it also contains West Philadelphia um, community and spiritual leaders. So coming from, uh, you know, really trying to represent these, uh, sorry, constituencies in in that neighborhood. So the critics are saying they haven't done enough work to track down the descendants before making this decision to to bury the remains in this mausoleum. But what haven't they done, according to the critics? Yeah, I think the, they haven't done enough research into this, uh, this question of who these individuals are. Um, and then the other concern is that this is coming from a decision-making body that is really just the museum, an extension of the museum. Mm. Um, that this should be, and, and they're also saying, you know, in other cases where uh, human remains of enslaved people have been found, that other institutions have done this by giving control and over the decision-making to independently organized community groups who then are able to say when, where, and how uh, they should be buried. But before we wrap up, though, I just want to get a sense of what not done enough 
means? Like, have they been more specific about what exactly not done enough entails? Like, are there specific avenues yes. they haven't gone down? Right. Yeah. So the the number 19 is actually something that's newer here. And even a couple of weeks ago, uh, this group of volunteer researchers had found that there was the one person whose name they do have, um, that his he has Native American ancestry, and so he's subject to different protections uh, than than the remains of of people from African descent of African descent. And in this context, you know, they're saying that they are no longer going to inter, and they did not inter that individual. They're still withholding him at the museum so that he might be available um, for people to come and potentially claim him. Yeah, and as we wrap up, I, I got to ask you, what is going to happen this weekend? because the remains have already been buried. Mm -hmm. So what is what is supposed to happen? So this is an interfaith ceremony. They're going to be um, they're going to be at the Penn Museum first um, and they will be commemorating these individuals there and then they will be going to the historic uh, Eden Cemetery. And I think as well, critics are going to be planning some counter-programming around that. Okay. Thank you, Rosa Cartagena, Cartagena, arts and entertainment reporter for the Philadelphia Inquirer, for being with us here in Studio 2. Thank you. Coming up next, the chemistry of tea. Make your case for the best way to prepare a cup. Call us 888-477-9499 or email studio2 at whyy.org. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Welcome on back to Studio 2. I'm Avi Wolfmaner. And I'm Cherry Gregg. Who would have thought, Avi? that a Brenmar chemistry professor could start an international incident over tea. But that is what happened when Michelle Fransel wrote in her new book, Steeped, that adding a few grains of salt to a cup of tea improved the taste. Who knew? Not the people in the United <laughs> Kingdom. They were shocked. They were appalled. TV news channels went around asking British tea drinkers what they thought and pretty universally they were disgusted by this mm, suggestion. Mm, mm. And of course, the fact that this advice came from an American, that probably did not help. We, however, Cherry, are unbiased journalists, mm-hmm. and we wanted to get to the bottom of Francel's claim and learn more about the science of tea, which I have to say is fascinating. Very fascinating. So we have Michelle Francel with us now in studio. She's even bought some tea with her to taste for us. Michelle, welcome to Studio Two. Thank you so much for having me. And friends, if you are a tea lover, we want to hear from you. What's your favorite tea? Do you have questions about varieties or the health benefits? You can call us or email. The number is 888-477-9499. The email studio2 at whyy.org. All right, Michelle, I don't want to tiptoe around the controversy. Mm-hmm. Let's get right into it. So, so how did you come up with this idea of you know, creating a, a perfect or ideal cup of tea and, and how did salt enter into that equation? So the idea for the book came from a tweet that uh, another chemist posted that said, does the shape of a tea bag matter? And it was between semesters, and I'm like, okay, I wonder what chemists know about the shape of tea bags. It turns out we know a ton about the shape of tea bags. Oh, really? And, yeah. um, and that got me looking at the chemistry literature around tea. And I wrote a short essay, and just as the pandemic broke, an editor saw it and said, can you turn it into a book? 
And it turned out, sure, I could turn it into a book. So this is in some ways a pandemic project for <laughs> <Okay>. me. <laughs> um, but the salt comes from an 8th century Chinese manuscript, which talks about how to make the best cup of tea. And it recommends adding a little salt to the water. And I wondered, what's the chemistry behind that? Or is it just, you know, something random? And so I dug into the chemistry literature. It turns out the coffee people knew um, that ah. the sodium ions block some of the receptors for bitterness. Um, and so you don't perceive the bitterness as much. So that's a hack coffee drinkers have been using for a while. And it's just a pinch of salt, right? Oh, like if you can taste, if it tastes salty, it's too much. I've seen these British things where they're putting a teaspoon in. I'm like, I can't imagine that they and you're like, take a drink. That's why you guys don't like it. <laughs> right, yeah. And so I, I want to zoom out be, and talk a little bit more about this perfect cup of tea because there's a lot to it. I mean, and, and there's so many different elements that I don't think, and I had some tea last night and as I was, you know, flipping through your book. And, and I think about there's so many elements that I think the average tea drinker just doesn't think about. Right. Well, I didn't think about it either. Even as a chemist and a longtime tea drinker, I didn't think about a lot of these things either. Everything from the temperature of the cup to how the tea was handled and, uh, and prepared, the difference between green tea and black tea. It was fascinating for me to find out there was incredibly rich chemistry. And so, yes, the variables mm -hmm. involved here, we've got temperature. Right. We've got mug. Yes. Mm -hmm. We've got the type of tea. Yes. We've got steeping time. Yes. We've got other things added, whether water. it's some more milk. The type of water you mm -hmm. use. Right, Can right. you talk about water? Actually, that's an interesting uh, part of this. Uh, what types of water should we be using so, in our tea? So if the water is hard, it's got a lot of ions in it, and that will react with some of the things in the tea. So if I make my tea at the college where the water is incredibly hard. What my, does that mean, hard water? Hard water means having lots of ions like calcium and magnesium in mm -hmm. it. Um, and those are ions that like to bind to other things because um, they have big charges. One of the big ideas of chemistry is opposites attract. Okay. So if you've got like a big charge on uh, an ion, it's attracted to other things that are negatively charged. Um, so those magnesium and calcium ions start like latching onto stuff, um, and that's chemistry. And the chemistry it latches onto changes the color. It's like I can tell you if my cup of tea was made at the college or at home just by looking at the color of the cup. Huh. Wow! And one of the other things you talk about is water temperature. Apparently, a lot of us mess that up. Oh right, we would like to, to use the right temperature. So for black tea, that means water at the boil. Um, so 212 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, for green teas and some other teas, you want a little cooler just below the boil. I learned from a Buddhist uh, uh, abbot how to take the tea and dump it between two different tea bowls to cool it off a little bit. Whoa, whoa, okay. These are tricks. <laughs> These are tricks oh, of the tray right here. <laughs> this, is, this is how to hack your cup of tea. The, the whole book is really about how to hack your cup of tea. Um, if you want to hack your way into this conversation, <laughs> give us a call. We're talking with Michelle Francel, professor of chemistry at Bryn Mawr College and author of Steeped, The Chemistry of Tea. Um, I think you guys know, studio2 at whyy.org. Mm -hmm. That's our email address. Okay, you must have been stunned by the reaction across the pond. And let me read. A few quotes, and I, I not to embarrass you, but just to, to give people a sense mm -hmm. of how, how some British tea drinkers felt. Um, Quentin Letts of the Daily Mail called said it was like the worst kind of pre-operation laxative. That was his description mm. of the little salt in laxative. the tea. Mm. Um, a Brighton tea drinker said tea's pretty spot on by itself. It doesn't need to be changed. Um, the American Embassy 
in the United Kingdom said, we want to assure the good people of the UK that the unthinkable notion of adding salt to Britain's national drink is not official United States policy and never will be. However, I have to say, another British journalist, Malcolm Brabant, said, I feel like I'm a traitor, but it's not too bad. Mm, Give me a sense of what it was like to see this thing just kind of explode online. It was crazy. I went into work on Wednesday morning, and there was, you know, one sort of request from a journalist about the the, the tea. And then by the time I reached the college, I had a request for a comment responding to that U.S. Embassy statement. I'm like, <laughs> what U.S. Embassy statement? About uh, me? Do you have the right professor? Right. Do you have the right professor? Do you have the right <laughs> stuff? You know, there's a lot of stuff going on in the world, and somehow tea did not seem like um, it yeah, was no going to rise to the top. Um, so it was really wild, and and it's kind of fun to see people talking about the chemistry mm-hmm. a little bit. Um, and you know, as a lifelong lover of chemistry, um, it's nice to see it getting some good press. One of the interesting things you said in the beginning of your book is that there's typically coffee people and then tea people, and most people are not both. Right. Um, I drink coffee in the morning, tea at night. Ah, is so that you- yeah, like so. I'm wondering. Why is that? What is it about the personality differences between coffee and tea drinkers? Coffee has a lot more caffeine in it yeah. than, than even the strongest tea. So I think if you really want that caffeine hit in the morning, um, you want your cup of coffee in the morning. Um, I find coffee too bitter. Maybe I should try some salt in my in my coffee in yeah, the we morning. We can hack that. We can hack we that. Could, we could do that. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're like my son who wants his coffee in the morning and his tea in the afternoon. Yeah, very interesting. It's kind of that can be like a nice gentle slope into the evening. And I do caffeine free teas. Before we get to some tea tasting, though, there is some really interesting stuff in Mm -hmm. this book just about caffeine in general. And one of the things that you point out, and I I did not know this, is that the way caffeine interacts in your system, its half life, can be dependent on what you're eating that same day. Is that is that right? Like broccoli will. Will help ex- like get it out of your system, but carrots won't. I mean, I was trying to make sense of this. So it has to do with how caffeine gets out of your system, which happens in the liver. And there are certain enzymes in the liver that are, can be influenced by what you eat. So there are some drugs they tell you not to take with grapefruit juice because that um, will keep them from getting cleared out by the liver, and they mm. can you can get too much concentration. But that works with caffeine too. I mean, caffeine is the drug in the cup. Yep. And so it will grapefruit will extend the length of time that caffeine stays in your system. And it turns out that broccoli and other things in that kind of cabbage family will reduce it. Um, so if I'm trying to go to sleep, I don't know, I guess I don't know how quick acting this would be, but it, like, let's say if I'm going to have some tea a little later in the day, maybe have some broccoli or cabbage with Yeah, me? I don't think it goes quite that fast. Oh, I think darn. Right. So um, have to plan ahead. Right. That would probably really set the British off by saying you need to have, you know, <laughs> broccoli with a cup of tea. That would be that would be the end. I'm sorry. Don't listen to this, London. Yes. And one of the things you talk about uh, in the book is that you say a cup of tea is essentially a drug delivery system. And while the primary drug drug is caffeine, people do drink teas for medicinal uses. Sure. And there's a long history in, of that. It, I mean, tea was originally a medicinal beverage. It was not recreational or, you know, something that when drank, you know, with a, with a meal. It was really a medicinal beverage. And human beings and primates have been using plants medicinally since before we were human. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the thing that I was really fascinated to find out um, as I researched for the book, that this is incredibly old chemistry. Yeah. And the follow-up to that is we got, humans got the idea from watching animals? Yeah. 
That was very fast. Like, oh, yeah. We were watching animals sort of drink the water of plants and decided to make tea. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's it's sort of people chewed on plants, right? Animals chewed on plants, people chewed on plants. And then someone got the idea, well, we don't need to get it wet by chewing on it. We can, you know, put this in, you know, to steep somewhere else. So Love it's really it. old chemistry. So I want to do something real quick before we bring on a caller. And I'm this person's been screened. They're not an angry British person. Mm-hmm. So, so that you're safe. Thank but you. uh, I was while we bring that caller on, I want to start pouring some yes. tea. So, pour, so what do pour, I have pour, here pour. in my hand? So what you have in there is a pu'er tea, pu'er. which is um, a black tea, but it's made using a mold. So there's okay. that black mold that you sometimes see on onions. Um, and that's the mold that does the work oh, of turning um, that tea into a nice dark tea. It's Ooh. really smooth and not astringent. It looks lovely. What mold. a great color. You said mold? Oh, yeah. It's done during mold. Chem- chemistry, it's like um, mold and cheese. Mold and cheese. So should we <laughs> smell the, the tea like we do oh, wine? Yeah. You, there's all these beautiful <laughs> scents that go with it, some of which are like shown to be... I almost get like a bread scent from that, like a yeasty, like just a comforting scent. Should I put a pinch of salt? You can try a pinch of salt. That's pretty not bitter, so the salt may not change it very much. Okay. It's like a, this, okay. this is almost like a full body tea. Yes. yes. Interesting. These, Am I these, right? Some yes. of these, some of those are aged for like ten years or more. And this is salt, so I just yeah. think that's delicious. Okay, now I'm going to bring in this caller, as mm-hmm. I promised. This is Donnie. She taught kids about the science of tea. What are the chances, Donnie? Uh, you're on Studio Two. What is your question or comment? Well, it's just a comment. I was saying that I had middle schoolers, and we talk about the science of many different things, but I taught them the science of tea, and we called it a positivity. Oh, <laughs> fabulous. People, <laughs> and we had people come in just to talk about self-esteem afterwards, but it was a good opportunity to teach kids about tea, and we brought in all different kinds of chocolate-infused tea and mm. oolong tea and just talked talk about the oxidization of it and um, just kind of put it on a middle school level and I had a good that. time with it. Thank oh, you, Donnie. Great. On to the next generation. Can, can I, I like it. Can I ask a question based on that? That's a great comment from Donnie. And, you know, this kerfuffle, and we're having fun with it, mm-hmm. is is purely fun and it's a distraction. But it's it's become, I think, a vehicle to talk with everyday people about chemistry. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and what do you hope people take away from these conversations and, and from your book? Well, I hope that people realize that there's an incredibly intricate world that we can't see. So when you hold that mug in your hand, there are as many molecules in that mug of tea as there are stars in the universe. That's incredible. So there's a whole universe right there in your hand. So that's one thing I'd like people to know. And the other thing, it's nice to know how the world works. And so the book has four big ideas of chemistry that you can use in other contexts to see how the world works. I absolutely love that. And do you have a green tea in here? I do, underneath the green tea Uh, cozy. And while we do this, we have a caller who wants to know. I'm going to pour some green tea Talking about green tea, but let's pour first. Okay. And then we'll bring the caller in who has a question. And this is Mike who wants to talk about, I believe, about temperature Mm -hmm. of tea. Mike, uh, we've got you now on studio two as we drink some green tea what is your question or comment well thanks i probably have a pot of green tea a day and i vary <laughs> different varieties but what i wanted to ask uh, the uh, author and i love the show thank you is so a japanese sencha for instance the bag will say one minute steep it for one minute mm-hmm. i think that's 175 and then some other green teas are typically two to three minutes and i can play with that but i want to get your opinion on 
how much different does it matter if it's two or three minutes mm. longer than it calls for, and what happens? That's a, a fascinating question. Mm, can you address that, Michelle? I, I can. So different compounds in the tea come out faster than others. Caffeine comes out pretty fast, and so in that one minute, you get probably a lot of the caffeine that's in that green tea. If you let it go a little longer, you get more antioxidants out and more sometimes of the bitter and astringent compounds. Um, and you just need to play with the time to find what, what works for you. Most green teas are steeped uh, at a lower temperature, um, which also changes kind of the composition of what you're getting out. How, how does that, the steeping time, um, impact the flavor of the tea? So generally, as you let tea steep longer, it gets more bitter and more astringent. Mm -hmm. So if you don't like that bitter, just, yeah. Yeah, take it out. Take yeah, it like out. For this green tea here, I, I'm sensing more of a sweetness than I typically associate with green tea. And so was that because of something you did in preparation? or I, It's just the choice of the tea. Mm. And so um, there's an old um, manuscript that says that the hand of the tea master is what's needed <laughs> to bring out the, the flavors of the tea. Um, and this is a tea called green snail tea. Mm. No snails. Promise. Okay. Okay. Um, I wouldn't mind if it was snails, but but I, I appreciate the disclaimer. <laughs> um, we bring in snails, then we get the uh -huh. French upset. Uh -huh. We don't want to create another uh, international incident. But, I, yeah, yeah I want to ask this email from Megan because it's a question I have. Is it does it make a difference if you put your sugar or honey in with the tea bag, or is oh. it better to wait until after it's steeped? I always put my honey at the bottom of the cup, then put the tea bag in the water. Have I been doing this wrong? No, it's okay to put that sugar or sweetener in first. Um, I tend to wait until the end because otherwise, you know, in case I over, um, you know, over add a little sweetener. Mm -hmm. um, but that will really not affect the chemistry of the steeping in the cup. Okay. Milk. We have not really addressed milk yet, uh, but this was another thing that you talked about, and I, I do think got some pushback on that as well. Not as much with, as with the salt, but... Mm. Um, milk, what's the best way to incorporate it, and what's it doing for that cup of tea? So there's a couple things. So there's a whole um, brouhaha generally in Britain. <laughs> Sorry about that. I love all the brouhaha. I promised puns, <laughs> and we're delivering. There's a pun. There's a pun. But um, about whether milk goes in first or last. Um, and it really makes not a whole lot of difference whether you put it in first or last if you're pouring brewed tea like from a pot in. If you're going to make your tea, this is one where, Terry, you don't want to put the milk in before mm -hmm. you brew the tea. You want to do it at the end because it'll lower the temperature. Ah. And because generally it's cold. Because it's cold. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And sometimes tea um, if, is it's hot. It's almost at the boiling point, And it can curdle the proteins in the milk, um, which some people don't care for. The, I've had that problem with coffee at times, too. Yeah. And yeah. so if you warm the milk up or if you let it sit on the counter for a little bit, you can make that... Uh, be less likely. That really upset the British. Um, cold, <laughs> cold milk is the whole point, they say. And, you know, fair, the best cup of tea is the best cup of tea you're enjoying. So um, if that's good. And something tells me you enjoy upsetting the British. I just <laughs> no, feel that. No. I, Michelle, I'm getting that off you. No, no. <laughs> I'm trying try, try not to hurt. My, my oldest son lives in London, and I think he's no. now afraid to tell anyone who his mother is. <laughs> Um, well, look, upsetting the, the British mm. is a Philadelphia <laughs> tradition. Okay, so um, I just want to bring in a, a couple more emails. Here's one from Ruth who says the best teas, mm. in Ruth's opinion, are Darjeeling and chocolate macaroon. macaroon. I don't mm. even know There's what a that. chocolate macaroon. I, I think of chocolate macaroon as something that you maybe eat, eat with, with tea, tea. Uh, but I guess it's a type of um, tea. And then uh, this is Marisol, a good question. and I think yes. Marisol's commented before. I like Marisol. Mm -hmm. Marisol asks. Uh, loose leaf tea or bags, what do you think? 
Oh, my preference is for loose leaf tea. Mm -hmm. You really get you get much more contact between the water and the tea leaves, so you get out all these beautiful floral compounds. So all the tea I brought you today got made with loose leaves. Uh, but on the other hand, most people use tea bags because it's really convenient. And if I'm you know out somewhere um, and tea bags are what there is, that's what I'm going to use. And as we pour our next tea. Yeah, so, so what's this one here? I'm just. Um, that one I think is. Jasmine? Yeah, Jasmine. Oh, nice. I, I did label it. them. And as we pour this, I have to ask you, how do you, I, I started with loose leaf for the first time recently. What is the best way to make sure, I mean, how much should you be putting it in the little infuser? Like, is there a way to do it wrong? Because I always have things floating in my water. Right. So you want I mean, the really mm, so great. Floral. Oh yeah, these, this is incredibly floral. This is this, this is very smells fragrant. amazing. Right, even just breathing it just makes you feel good. Um, and I this just is make jasmine. This yeah. is jasmine. This is jasmine. I, do, I either use jasmine or rose in the afternoon just because it makes my office smell nice. But the key to the infuser cherry is to find one of these ones that has. Um, oh, I didn't bring one into the studio with me, but that has very tiny holes in it. Um, laser perforated stainless steel works great. Doesn't, doesn't add any flavor, and it, you don't get the little bits in the bottom. Mm -hmm. The thing you don't want to use, um, I brought my cutest infuser, which is, looks like a yellow submarine, um, but the trouble Ooh. is it's too small, um, and the tea leaves don't have any room to expand, and there's tiny holes, so there's not easy passage of the water. So ah. I use uh, an infuser in my mug that's almost the same size as the mug. Ah, lots of space Before for everything to move around. We let you go, and sadly, we are coming up on the end of this segment. I know, but this has been fun. You know that we here in the public media world we're big into mugs. Mm -hmm. We have a lot of mugs. I don't know if the mugs that we give out are actually the right mugs for, for drinking tea. tea. What's the right type of mug to best enjoy your tea? I'm going to say it's one that holds the heat so that it stays warm while you drink it. Um, and often that's a short and stout mug, just like that song you learned in kindergarten about <laughs> teapots should be short I'm and stout. I'm a little teapot, yeah. Yep, absolutely. Oh. So the mugs that are sitting here on the on the table look pretty good to me. So nice. our Studio 2 mugs our, work for tea. I like absolutely. that. I like, so short and stout holds in the heat. Right, because it has less surface area for the volume. And Perfect. by the way, I'm going to jam this in. Email from Carol. She says... Can you talk about the value of cinnamon in your tea? Ah, it, there are lots of spices you can put in your tea. And in India, that's you can find a bazillion different ways to mm. do it. It's great. That's awesome. Well, awesome. Michelle Francel, this has just been lovely. And the book yeah. is called Steeped, the Chemistry of Tea. It is making waves across the world, as we established. Uh, Michelle Francel is also a professor of chemistry at Bryn Mawr College, right outside Philadelphia. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. This has been great fun. I love this, Jasmine. Tea. And coming up, we'll hear from the folks behind a new PBS kids show inspired by Philadelphia. Stick with us. With those millionaires, when I take my sugar to tea, I'm as ritzy as I can be. Cause I never take away the gangles when I take my. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in depth, long form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Welcome back to Studio 2. I mean, to Studio 2. I'm Avi wolfman <laughs> And I'm Cherry Gregg. That theme song is going to get stuck in my head. On Monday, a new series called Lila in the Loop will premiere on PBS Kids. 
It follows Lila, a dynamic seven-year-old black girl who lives in a big city with her siblings and parents above the family's diner. She's a relatable, relentless engineer who works hard to solve everyday problems. And the big city that you mentioned, uh-huh. Cherry, is very heavily inspired by Philadelphia. So, of course, we have mm-hmm. to uh, talk to the folks behind the show. We have to do it. It's Philly mm-hmm. adjacent. Mm-hmm. We sat down with executive producer for Caswell Hyman and the series creator Dave Path, who runs Mighty Picnic Studios in South Philly. And I started by asking Dave about Stu. That's S-T-U, standing for something truly unique. He is Lila's fantastical blue sidekick. He's a creature that's totally unique, but he's very literally minded. So he'll do exactly what you ask, no more, no less. So if you ask Stu to pour you some cereal... He will, and he'll keep pouring and pouring and pouring because you didn't tell him exactly how much you wanted or when to stop. So together, they solve problems in everyday life. They you know, build with blocks. They make um, their own toy train to ride in. They help out in the family restaurant together and, of course, make some pretty big messes along the way. Stu, please pass me the ketchup. Stop! Please gently pass me the ketchup. So Stu is very literal and can do things really fast and really efficiently. So he's kind of like a computer, kinda right? Like, that's right. It's kind of like a computer. And for Caswell, you are the head writer. You're also the executive producer of the show. So what is it like writing these type of problem-solving-based shows in a fun way for kids four to eight years old? You know, I look for the human story first Mm. and you know things that kids would recognize as something they've dealt with themselves or you know something that they're going through once I find the story that we can have fun with and also um, accomplish the learning goals then uh, we set off and fill in the story and Lila is uh, relentless Mm -hmm. in the episodes that I've seen it's like Lila starts solving a problem, doesn't quite solve it all the way, and is like, all right, what went wrong here? And she, like, reverse engineers it. Now we can figure this out. It's just a problem we can solve, right? Right. Why did you see Lila as a good character to embody those character traits for the kids who are watching? Well, because she's a girl... You know, and girls get the job done. You know, <laughs> girls who run the world. Girls, right? Yay. Hey. And also, you know, there aren't as many women of color yeah. in the the whole computer. Yeah, science and tech careers. That's careers. Right. And so Lila is designed to encourage that. You know, um, encourage girls to who look like her to think about doing that kind of stuff to, you know, take over Silicon Valley. Um, <laughs> Start and, with Lila. Yeah, and I think she is a good example not only for girls of color but for any girl because she's funny, she's mm-hmm. fun, she's welcoming and warm. You know, her whole family is. And so I think that uh, she's someone that all kinds of girls and boys can look up to. Yeah, and I'll add on, she also makes mistakes, you know? She's not perfect. Mm. She's a, not a morning person, as we find out early in this series, <laughs> which we all can relate to. And uh-huh. kids need to know it's okay not to be perfect, whatever that may mean. you got to just try and be okay to make mistakes and just go ahead and try again. You, you really can't solve any problem if at the first couple bumps you just sort of throw in the towel. You know, you mm. got to be willing to look closer and sort of go part by part and really, you know, debug, you know, to use the computer science term, like, 
where's the source of the problem? Yeah. And you all deal with ethical issues too. And I'm thinking about AI and a lot of students are tackling the use of artificial intelligence in classrooms. Talk about sort of wrapping in some of those ethical issues like into the, the, the problem solving lessons that you teach. Well, there's an episode in Lila where her sister gets a picture drawn mm -hmm. that she asks Stu to draw. And she just asked him as an example of, you know, what she might do. And then by accident, that drawing is taken and, and submitted to her teacher. And she has to, you know, has the dilemma because everybody loves it. So does she tell them that she did it mm. or does she tell them that Stu did it? You know, and I think that's important in this day and age of AI to, you know, not do it the quick and easy route and have the computer draw, make your art or write your essay, um, but actually do the work yourself. So, David, you know. instead of just STEM problems, it's life problems. Uh, oh, yeah, well. that's right. That's right. And I think the message of the show, even beyond that episode, is that we don't have to accept technology that we're given. You mm -hmm. know, kids now, they're the folks who are going to be making the tech in the future. Uh, it seems like in this show for Caswell, you guys are trying to give them um, a sense of their power and their responsibility. Yeah, I think it's um, a sense of the power and responsibility not only of the kids but of the family as a whole. Yeah, mm -hmm. you know, for us to put down the tablets and you know turn away from the t from the phones for a while and and do things together. So you know, we encourage them to play together, to have fun together. To create their own games, you know, that they can play together um, because it's important not to lose the connection with your family and, and be off looking at your phone all the time. Yeah, that's time, right. You know. you know, some of our favorite episodes, I think, are or they go, you know, on a uh, scooting and bike riding together. They bake together. Camp uh, together. Camp together, exactly. And all that is, um, you know, it's encouraging that same connection that Kaz just, uh, just spoke about. So this is an animated show. You know, there's a lot of Philly scenery in there. How do you sort of tie all that in? I know you have a team, but <laughs> right. explain the process for us. Well, when we were um, looking at location designs, for example, and you have to pull together some pictures. You know, what's it going to look like? What, what are the animators going to pull from? And so we drew a lot of reference points from Philly architecture. You'll see a lot of row homes in the series. Lila and her family live um, in the apartment building upstairs from their family restaurant and her best friend Everett Fan. Um, lives at an apartment across the hall, and his family has a hardware store on the bottom floor next door. So we have this like dense neighborhood, all different kinds of folks living together, a lot of family-run businesses. Um, and Sounds some, very Philly. Exactly. <laughs> this, is, this is what feels like Philly to me. And some small touches you'll see in one episode, if you can find it, there's a Philly soft pretzel in that classic shape. So mm. those who know will know that's a Philly <laughs> Look specialty. Look Easter eggs. Yes, that's right. I want to ask you about stew. Stu, it's sort of, I guess, maybe easy for me as an adult to see him as like a proto-computer type character. But the truth is, like, it's not really explained what Stu is, where Stu comes from. And I, I want to ask about that dynamic when you're presenting something to children. Because on, on one hand, sometimes children, they want to know everything. Why? Who? Mm -hmm. What is that? Where does it come from? But they're also really good at filling in the blanks with their imagination. So how do you kind of play with that line with a character like Stu, who is something? Well, we show kids a character that's fun and empathetic and always willing to help. 
but then you get to make up the rest of it yourself, you know? People and characters ask Lila, is he a cat? No, he's a stew. Is he a wombat? No, he's a stew. Because stew is something truly unique. And so the audience has the space to create who they think Stu is or where they think Stu came from. And um, he's pretty fun to draw, too. So, And you guys incorporate kids from our area into the show as well. Dave, can you talk about how Philly kids are involved? That's right. Yeah, when we were recording our theme song, which was um, you know composed and performed by Divinity Rocks, we reached out to uh, a local Philly public school, Fanny Jackson Coppin School in, in South Philly, and invited some students there to take part in recording the theme song. So um, Divinity came down, and we recorded the kids you know, singing and stomping and shouting. And you can hear their voices now in, in, in the theme, and it just made it just, it's wonderful to hear them in there. Yeah, and kids also submit their artwork. That's right. Yeah, every episode starts with um, a mural, another very Philly touch, right? Where the, you see the title of the episode, and behind it is kid art um, on the on the wall in, in Lila's world, and that was submitted by a kid. Some kids here in Philly, some from across the country. That is Dave Peth, creator of Lila in the Loop and founder of Mighty Picnic Production Company in South Philly. Woo-hoo. Thanks for joining us, Dave. <laughs> Happy to be here. Uh, you also heard for Caswell Hyman, executive producer and head writer of Lila in the Loop, also an author and actor for Caswell Hyman. Thanks for being with us on Studio 2. My pleasure. Oh, yeah, we are we jamming are jam that. I, that. That Such is a, a very song. catchy song. So catchy. Lila in the Loop premieres on WHYY TV 12 this Monday, February 5th. Enjoy it with a properly brewed cup of tea. Mm-hmm. You can also watch on the PBS Kids app. Looking forward to that launch. And that, friends, is it for our show today. Download us wherever you get your podcasts and be sure to rate and review. Our producers are Debbie Builder, Paige Murray Bessler, and Andreas Copes. Al Banks engineered today's program. Joan Isabella is our audio general manager. From Studio 2 at WHYY here in Philadelphia, I'm Cherry Gregg with my pinky up, sipping this tea. (laughs) I'm Avi. Rate and review Wolfman Aaron. Thank you for joining us. We will see you next week.